The Gallup organization does a poll at this time every year asking people to rank church leaders, not rank as in I like this one more than that one, but rank them in terms of qualities like uh, honesty, trustworthiness, uh, uh, ethics, those sorts of things. And in the old days, people felt like they really could trust church leaders, that they had their best interests at heart. But this year, according to this survey, which is done every year, uh, trust in church leaders has fallen to an all-time low. Uh, this year, less than half of American Christians believe that church leaders have high ethical standards. Ouch. Among Americans as a whole, Christians and non-Christians, only 37% have trust in church leaders. Here's a graph that shows the decline. In fact, there's seven other professions that people trust more, including accountants. Go figure on that. But uh, before we talk about the details of that, I've got to point out something about the survey that did make me laugh a bit. I mean, if you can't laugh, you'll cry, right? So uh, at the bottom of the rankings, there's some professions that seem a little bit out of whack, uh, if you ask me. The, the lowest-ranked professions, take a look. Uh, in case you can't read that, the members of Congress got the lowest ranking. Only 8% of Americans have high trust in members of Congress. Those people probably are members of Congress, you know. Uh, But I have to laugh because uh, congresspersons ranked lower than even car salespeople and telemarketers and advertising uh, practitioners. I mean, advertisers get paid to lie to us. They, they're lying about the products, how great they are. We know it's a lie, you know, and yet we trust them more than we trust members of Congress. So I don't know. The good news is it's still better to be a church leader than to be a member of Congress. But but there's an inherent distrust in church leaders, and that's really sad, I think. I mean, maybe more sad for me than it is for you, but it's also wise. It's realistic. Uh, because church leaders, we suffer from the same problem that everybody has. We're all humans. We're all flawed, sinful people. So it's really no surprise when a church leader disappoints us. And it also should come as no surprise that God understands this, that that even more so, God planned for this. God created a way for churches to be led by sinful, flawed people, and he created a way for it to happen well. In other words, God knew that people would lead his church, and God knew that that sinful, flawed people would lead his church, but he created a way for those churches to still be healthy in spite of the fact that we're all humans. We've been in a series we call A Healthy Church, and in a healthy church, leadership happens the way that God designed. That's certainly what we want for Trinity. Here at Trinity, we're in really an exciting time. We've been moving forward. We've been seeing lots of things happen, and we want to be moving forward in healthy ways, right? And in this series, we've been exploring the book of Titus. Titus is a book that has a lot to say about healthy churches. And it's, in fact, that's the entire reason that the book of Titus was written. Paul wrote this book to his young protege, Titus. We learned a little bit about the person, Titus, a couple of weeks ago. And, and Paul wrote this letter to Titus for a very specific purpose. He had a plan for Titus, and that plan's laid out right at the beginning of the book. So look with me, if you will, at Titus chapter 1. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. 
and which now, at his appointed season, he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. And so, so Paul tells Titus right off the bat what his purpose is. He introduces the letter, and here in verse 5, he tells him his purpose. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. Paul left Titus in Crete so he could put the church in order. Paul chose Titus to be a church leader, to lead and organize these churches in Crete. So the entire letter is really built around this simple command, to put things in order, to, to set things right. Well, how is Titus supposed to do that? What exactly is needed in Crete? What's missing that will help set things right? Look at the very next part of the book with me. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Appoint elders. That's the solution to setting things right. Paul tells Titus, this church leader, that he needs to, to surround himself with other church leaders, elders, if he's going to put things in order. That's the solution. Appoint elders. Now, given these statistics I shared a bit ago, that may seem like a bad idea. It may seem like a, a, a terrible idea, putting the church in the hands of a bunch of folks who rank somewhere between accountants and car salespeople, right? But the reality is that it's not just an idea that Paul suggested on his own. It's not just an idea that's good for the unique situation in Crete, and there's another idea for some other churches. In fact, it's God's idea, and it's an idea that runs all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Paul's instruction to Titus here is God's solution for churches everywhere. And in fact, here at Trinity, this is a part of our journey. As we move forward as a church, we've sensed this need to move towards elder leadership, a plurality, a group of elders who can guide the church moving forward. Because a group of elders is part of God's solution for leading the church through sinful people. So this morning, I want us to explore the concept of elders as leaders, because I want us to have a firm grasp on this idea as our church continues to move forward. I want us to all understand that a healthy church is led the way that God designed. And it's important that every one of us hear this and understand it, even if you'll never be an elder. It's important because we're all a part of the faith family. We're all invested, and unity is perhaps the most uh, critical element in any healthy church. And so we're going we're gonna to journey through several places in the Bible today. If you've got a print Bible, you want to open it up, have it ready to flip around in. If you've got a digital Bible, you guess you can just warm up your scrolling finger or whatever. But the idea of elders as leaders, it's not a new invention, not a new idea, not something that Paul thought, oh, this is just what they need here, and there's some other solution over here. In fact, if you were here at Trinity this summer, our series Wildfire, we looked at the book of Acts, and, and we learned that every single church in the New Testament was led by a group of elders. You can go back and listen to that message on our website. That's uh, from July 29th. So a group of elders as leaders, it goes back all the way to the beginning. It runs all through the New Testament. And so I want us to go back to the beginning to explore this idea. Flip back with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. That's the second book of the Bible all the way back in there. 
And just a bit of context before we look at this specific passage. In this passage, God's people are in slavery in Egypt. They're forced to make bricks for the Egyptian king, and yet God is about to change all that. God is at work in Moses' life, and God, he famously speaks to Moses in a burning bush, right? And God reveals to Moses his plan to rescue the people of Israel from slavery. And Moses, he's, he's touted as the leader of the people of Israel. I mean, he did meet with God face to face. God used him in some amazing ways, you know, the Ten Commandments, all those kinds of things. But I think you'll be surprised that, that God's plan for a group of leaders, it's present even here when God first calls Moses. Look with me at Exodus 3, starting in verse 16. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. (coughs) And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So notice a few things here. First, Moses is told by God to deliver a message to the elders of Israel, the leaders of the community. Not everybody in the community, just the elders. God's plan for for rescuing, for redeeming Israel involves not just Moses, but the elders, this group of leaders. God wants these leaders to be aware of his plan so that they can lead others with Moses when the time comes. And notice too in verse 18, it's not just Moses who's representing the people of Israel, but God specifically tells him that Moses is to go with the elders to confront the king. They go as a group. It's not just Charlton Heston in there doing all the work. There's there's a group of elders there too, right? So right from the beginning of this covenant community, God utilizes a group of elders to lead his people. Even though God specifically called Moses, the elders are working together with Moses to lead the people of God. It's a a snapshot of the same kind of leadership that God has in mind for his church, a church led by a group of elders. So there's one place that we see elders in leadership, right at the beginning of Moses' time as a leader. But the elders' leadership, it's not limited to this moment. Let's look at another couple of places in Exodus. Later in the story, Moses and the elders have gone to the king. He's refused to let him go on this three-day journey that went all Gilligan's Island, turned into 40 years in the the wilderness. And he's refused to let him go, so God is up the stakes a bit. God has sent a bunch of plagues in order to get Pharaoh's attention, but none of it has worked. Pharaoh's still refusing to let the people of God go. So God has one more plague in mind. But just like with all the plagues, God's people are spared. And in this last plague, God gives uh, specific directions for how his people are to be spared. It's it's the origin of Passover, the the holy day of Israel's calendar. God said he would punish the Egyptians by sending plagues. The people of Israel are, are spared all the damage and destruction of the plagues. And this last plague is the worst one of them all, where the firstborn of every household is killed, unless they had marked their house with the blood of a lamb. That step of obedience to God would spare them from judgment. So let's look at Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21. 
Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So these are the instructions for how to survive this final plague. It'll be really important that everybody hears them and understands them. But look, right at the beginning of this paragraph, Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Moses gives these instructions to the elders. He doesn't go door to door and talk to everyone. He doesn't write it down and make a bunch of copies, make sure everybody sees it. He tells the elders. And they have the responsibility to lead the people. That's part of God's plan. The elders have a life and death responsibility. Uh, If they don't get this message out to all the people, people will die. I mean, the stakes literally can't be any higher. And this Passover event, it's something that shapes this community for generations, that sets them apart as God's people. Everybody who who listens to God and does what he says is a part of this community. So it's a major spiritual leadership responsibility, and it falls to these elders. So right from the beginning, God is leading his people through a group of elders. These elders are the ones who are shaping this spiritual community. So the elders play a critical role at Passover. And God uses the elders in an increasing role after this. Look at one more place in Exodus where the elders are utilized. In Exodus 18, the people of God, they're out away from Egypt. They're learning what it takes to be God's people, learning God's way of living in the world, but it's not easy. Uh, There's a lot of things to figure out. Moses is wearing himself out, trying to lead all the people, settle all the questions and disputes. And Moses' father-in-law comes. And he sees what's happening, how Moses is working way too hard, not able to get it all done. And because everybody loves to get unwarranted advice from their father-in-law, Jethro decides to tell Moses what he sees. So look at Exodus 18, verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you're doing is not good. You and all these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. Show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves." That will make your load lighter because they'll share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. So Moses formally institutes some leadership positions for the people, helping them understand how to live as this newly formed spiritual community. And these elders, these, these leaders have a spiritual leadership and also a very practical leadership. The elders are, are helping people learn how to live out their faith to put it into practice every day. That's significant. A few important observations we want to make about this passage and the role that these leaders have. The first thing that's worth noting here is how these leaders are chosen. They're chosen based on their spiritual maturity. Look at verse 21. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, 
trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. So the qualifications are not that these are good businessmen or rich people, any other kind of worldly measure. They're chosen for their spiritual maturity. It's the same kind of qualifications that Paul gives to Titus in Titus 1, spiritual qualifications. The selection has, has nothing to do with their status in the tribe or their age, any of the other kind of measures that we're naturally drawn to. It has everything to do with their spiritual maturity. Are they capable of leading God's people? Another thing I want us to notice here is the structure of this leadership. Look at verse 21 again. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So there's a a structure here. And I don't think it's so much a a hierarchy as in, well, this guy's only mature enough to lead ten people. Maybe eventually he'll grow up to a leader of a thousand. I don't think it's like that. That's kind of a a corporate way of looking at this like a business org chart. I don't think that's what's happening here. The structure tells us a couple of really important things about how these elders function. First, it tells us that they're working together. I mean, every leader of ten... He's talking to one of these leaders of 50. They've got a little small group that meets regularly and then talks about how to best lead the people. And all these leaders of 50, they're meeting with the leader of 500 or whatever, and they've got another little group working together. Make sure all the judgments are fair and consistent, learning from each other. The tough case that this guy wrestled with is a lesson for these other guys, that kind of shared leadership. So that's one thing. They've got this, this shared leadership working together. Well, the other note here is that the way that these group of leaders is established tells us that these elders are with the people. They're they're living right alongside the people they're leading. I mean, the way this is set up, there's a leader for every 10 people. So nobody has a need that's being ignored. Nobody has a problem that goes unseen. Every 10 people have direct access to a spiritually mature leader. In church leadership circles, people who think about this kind of stuff, uh, they talk about something called the pastoral span of care. In other words, how many people can a pastor reasonably care for? And and the typical span of care for a pastor, people who think about this stuff, they say a typical span of care is about 125 to 150 people. Right? Church experts say a pastor should be able to care for about 150 people. So that's why, like, a church grows to 200 people or so, they got to hire another pastor, that kind of a thing. And that's why also, in a church this size, growth groups become so important because you get that same kind of care as the church continues to grow and grow. So that's just a plug for growth groups. But, but pastoral span of care, it, it's an interesting idea. But I'm guessing if you sat there and thought about it, you'd be hard-pressed to name 150 people here, much less try to care for them, right? But in this passage here, God has an even better plan. He's got a group of mature leaders working together so that everybody has a relationship with a leader. Relational leadership. What a great idea. Sounds kind of familiar, right? One of the reasons we've gone through our relational disciple training is because it's an effort for leaders here at Trinity to grow in this way, relationally. Not just gaining spiritual maturity, but gaining relational maturity as well. So that a a group of leaders, our future elders and other leaders, are are able to work together to care for each and every one of us. 
So there's a lot of interesting elements here in the story of the Exodus. So many things that God introduces. Elders who work with Moses to lead the people. Elders who are given life and death spiritual leadership to shape the community of of God's people. And, And leaders who are relationally connected and working together. But there's something this passage doesn't talk about. I mean, we said at the beginning, church leaders are flawed people. Just a little bit up the ladder from members of Congress. And I think as we at Trinity position ourselves for elder leadership, we need to understand God's view of flawed leaders. We see in Titus these qualifications for leaders we talked about last Sunday. But I want us to look at a passage where God speaks very frankly to leaders who don't meet those qualifications. So flip ahead from Exodus to the book of Ezekiel. That's in the Old Testament still. We're looking at Ezekiel 34. And let me set the stage a little bit. This prophet Ezekiel, he lived in the time of the exile. Israel and Judah had been conquered, and and God's people had been scattered away from the land that God promised them. It was a very dark time. And God raised up Ezekiel as a prophet to encourage the people to help them stay connected to God, even in this very dark time. And I want us to note specifically what God has to say to the leaders of the people. Look at Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth. And no one searched them or looked for them. God has some strong words for these leaders, these shepherds of God's people. And we can kind of reverse engineer the criticism to learn a little bit about what these shepherds should have been doing. Let's examine the passage just a bit. One thing to notice right away is how they're described. These leaders are called shepherds by God. He's casting a vision of what they could be like. And if God describes them as shepherds, then their role should be caring for and guiding the sheep, the people. Instead, they seem entirely focused on their own self-interest. They're accused of, of using up all the resources that should go to the flock. They take advantage of the flock. They're not strengthening the weak or caring for the sick or wounded. They become the exact opposite of what a shepherd should be. And the result of their failed leadership is seen right at the end of the passage. Look at verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. So God tells these sinful leaders that their poor leadership is the reason that the people are in exile. The people of God failed to live up to God's standards, failed to remain obedient to God, and right here, God puts the blame squarely on the shepherds, these leaders. It's their fault that the people were scattered to different lands. That tells us something about what God thinks of leaders, the responsibility he assigns to leaders. But perhaps the biggest criticism comes at the end of verse 4. God tells these leaders, you have ruled them harshly and brutally. 
that's the exact opposite of what a shepherd is supposed to do. And it's the opposite of what an elder is supposed to do. Elders are shepherds and should lead with gentleness and care, guiding the sheep. And this brings up a very critical distinction for us here at Trinity. As we consider a transition to elder leadership, this passage in Ezekiel might scare some of us away from that. But there's an important distinction to keep in mind, and the distinction is this. There's a difference between elder leadership and elder rulership. What we're considering is elder leadership, where the congregation still plays a vital role, a necessary role. We'll say the church is elder-led and congregationally affirmed. That's the model we're moving towards. The congregation, all of us, still have a potent voice, and the elders are relationally connected to the congregation in a way that their leadership represents the best interests of the congregation, of all of us. They're true shepherds, not rulers, who are harsh and authoritarian. So elder-led, not elder-ruled. That's an important distinction. That's an idea we're going to hear more about in time, but, but this passage in Ezekiel highlights the importance of elders who are really shepherds. And when we realize that God is the one who created this model of leadership, this elder model, and when we realize that God is the one who calls these leaders shepherds, it helps us to begin to understand what biblical leadership should look like. And I want us to continue our journey by exploring this idea of shepherding. And when I think about a shepherd leader, my mind really only goes to one person, Jesus. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. That's the next passage I want us to explore, John 10. And I learned something uh, many years ago. You might know this too. I learned something about this passage in John 10. In John 10, Jesus is teaching and he describes himself as the good shepherd. In verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus tells us that he's a shepherd, but he's not just any shepherd. He's a good shepherd because he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. That's what makes him a good shepherd. He's good, which means there's a way to be a bad shepherd, right? I mean, good is a comparison. If Jesus is good, there is such a thing as a bad shepherd, And in fact, if you read the beginning of John 10, Jesus describes the differences between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And thinking about these differences between good and bad shepherds, I learned something. I learned that John 10 comes after John chapter 9. It's true. It's amazing the kind of things you can learn when you read the Bible. John 10 comes after John 9. What does John 9 have to do with being a good shepherd? Well, at the beginning of John 10, Jesus is talking. He's talking about this difference between good shepherds and bad shepherds. And look at John 10, verse 1. He says, very truly I tell you, Pharisees. He's talking to Pharisees, these people who were the leaders of Israel. And spoiler alert, they're bad shepherds. They're not good leaders. And John 9 highlights just how bad they are. If you read John 9, there's a story about Jesus healing a man who was born blind. You might be familiar with the story. Jesus heals him, and the Pharisees, these leaders, these bad shepherds, they're all over the guy's case. They're threatening him. They're threatening his family. They show how bad they really are. They have no compassion for the guy, even though it's obvious that he used to be blind, and now he can see. But they don't care anything about that. All they care about is their own status and their own self-interest. They're bad shepherds. And it's their leadership failure that leads Jesus into teaching about what makes a good shepherd. So John 10 comes after this leadership failure 
in John 9. So Jesus teaches this important lesson by way of comparison. Biblical leaders are self-sacrificial. They're not self-serving. That's what Jesus himself models. That's the comparison he gives here in John 9 and John 10. And this truth about what makes a good shepherd, a good leader, leads us right back to Titus, back to what a healthy church should look like, fully aligned with God's agenda. Paul's advice to Titus, telling him what's needed to set things in order, is an idea that's aligned with God's agenda from the beginning, all the way back to Exodus. A group of elders, not rulers, but leaders, who will shepherd God's people, guiding them, living among them, sacrificing for them. All that kind of leadership can really be summed up in a quote I read this past week. Simply put, leadership is always given for the benefit of those under that leadership. If God gives a person a leadership role, it's not for their own self-interest or status, but it's solely for the benefit of other people. Biblical leadership is always sacrificial. So as we've journeyed, we've talked about these leaders, these elders, but what about the rest of us? What's our role? I'm going to leave us with a couple of things we can all focus on, even those of us who are not elders. First of all, we all need to support the leaders that God has given us. Look at this passage from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul encourages the church to love and support its leaders. That's one thing we should all do. Live at peace with the leaders that God has given us. And notice, these leaders, they're not only over us, they're also among us. There's that relational leadership again that's so important. Live at peace. That's one thing we can do, support our leaders. Another thing we can all do and should do is willingly submit to our leaders. Here's a passage from Hebrews 13. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So being willing to submit to the leaders that God has placed over us is critical. Being willing to be led by elders. That's something we all need to do. And notice, there's really two parts to this passage. This, this comment that we should all submit to leaders, but there's also a warning for leaders. Leaders must give an account before God. That's a statement against these authoritarian leaders. So as we support and as we submit to God-given leadership, leaders have to follow the example of Christ. Finally, one more thing that we all need to do. We talked about how every leader of God's church is flawed. I mean, except Jesus, all the rest of us are sinful people. We're all capable of being like the Pharisees or like these bad shepherds of Ezekiel, which means we all need prayer. That's the third thing we can all do is pray for our leaders. As part of the relational disciple training, those of you doing the training, you already know this, but as part of the training, one of the the relational assignments is to pick up the phone and call someone and and pray with them. Now, that sounds like a pretty simple assignment, but then you think, okay, when was the last time you did that? it's, It's that kind of relational shepherding. It's not something that comes naturally to very many of us. And so that's part of the training. But it's a great practice for each and every one of us. As we consider what it means to support our leaders, to submit to their leadership, to pray for them, this is a great way to do that. You can just call up one of our current leaders and encourage them, pray for them. And then 
You can do it again and again. And you can begin to get involved in their lives. And you can let them get involved in your life. That's a simple way to begin to support and submit to our leaders. Their names are right there on the back of the worship folder. You can always call the office if you need a phone number. It's a simple way to do that. And I want us to pray together right now, praying not only for our current leadership, but pray for those who are going to be our future elders. God's plan for the church, for a healthy church, is to be led by a group of elders. That's where Trinity's headed, and we can pray now for those who will become Trinity's elders, these spiritually mature leaders living in relationship with each of us, guiding people in spiritual growth, sacrificing for the sake of others. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are at work here at Trinity. You are guiding us and and moving us into alignment with you as a healthy church. And we want to be willing to go where you lead us. And uh, we want to pray not only for the current leaders here at Trinity, people who are are, uh, sold out to you, Lord, and want to be living in a way that's modeled after your son, Jesus. But we want to pray for our future leaders, our future elders. You know who they are, Lord. You're preparing them even now, uh, whether it's through this training or other means, Lord. You're, You're at work in those lives. And we want to pray for those people, that they would be leaders in the model of your son, Jesus, being willing to lay down their life over and over and over again for the sake of your people, Lord. We know that that's the model that you give us, that group of leaders working together, relationally connected, and that's what we want to see for the future of Trinity, Lord. And we want to pray as well for our pastoral search team as they continue their important work, as they are looking for the, uh, the person who will uh, be our next lead pastor, our next senior pastor, Lord, that they would be uh, listening to your voice and finding the person that you've already identified for that role, Lord, that that person could come to a church that is healthy, that is aligned with you and, and, and help uh, do the things that you want to do here at Trinity and here in our valley. We pray for these things and we pray for each and every one of us that we would increase our relational connectedness, increase our willingness to support and love and care for each other and for our leaders. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.